And so I started last week on just a little series, just a two-part series called Under Shepherds, realizing that we are all under the great shepherd, whether we're pastors or members or whatever, we are all under the great shepherd. And so the ministry of a pastor is really the minister of a, ministry of an under shepherd. Last week, we talked about sheep and their shepherd, and we examined what is required of the sheep toward their shepherd. Today, we're going to reverse it. We're going to address the pastor's responsibility toward the sheep. And for this, I want to read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have a mint in my mouth. I'm trying to finish. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 4, there. And starting at verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth, turn aside to myths, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Father, we come to you today once again in, in wonder of your word and the incredible truth it contains. And I pray that as we address this subject today, that your Holy Spirit would let, let these words really sink deep into our hearts and produce good fruit. So we're grateful for your kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever experienced one of those annoying chain letters that come around? Any of you ever get a chain letter? Um, they demand that you reply or else, you know, if you don't, this, some curse is going to be on you or something. They're just ridiculous. Well, the chairman of a church board received the following chain letter in the mail. I quote, this chain letter is meant to bring you happiness. Simply sit down and make a list of five other churches that are tired of their pastor. Send a copy of this letter to all five churches on the list. Then send your pastor to the church on the bottom of the list. In one week, you will receive 15,625 pastors, and one of them should work out for you. <laughs> P.S. Don't break the chain. One church broke it and got their old pastor back. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not easy being a pastor sometimes, and the text that I read to you was written by the Apostle Paul late in his life when he was in chains. Scholars say that it was, writ it was written um, soon before Paul's death. They estimate that Paul was about <laughs> my age at the time. Yikes. <laughs> but this chain letter, the, this, his epistles were passed around, so in a sense you could call them chain letters. It was written to a young man named Timothy, and it was written as a primer to pastors. And I'd like to draw some truth from 
these inspired words today, and, and it sets the parameters, I believe, for pastors today as well. I want to address my comments to all of you, but primarily to pastors Johnny and Rachel, though we would all do well to hear these words. Now, in order to make sure that I'm not sent to a church at the bottom of the list, I will keep my comments brief, but then you've heard that before many times from me. I want to center my comments on the preaching of the Word, as Paul did, but I don't want to limit this thing called preaching to the times when we stand behind a pulpit and speak. Instead, um, I, want to, I want to broaden that a bit because preaching is much more than standing here and telling you about the Scriptures. In fact, preaching the gospel, as I understand it, in the New Testament is actually a lifestyle. The Bible college that I attended many moons ago uh, put a great deal of emphasis on producing what they called pulpiteers, people who know how to handle themselves behind the pulpit. They required, they required five semesters of homiletics. Homiletics is the art and the science of preaching. And they really emphasized pulpit ministry. When we went home on Thanksgiving vacation or Christmas vacation, we were responsible to bring back an outline of the pastor's sermon that we heard when we were home on vacation. We were never done listening to outlines. And we were taught to outline everything. I can't read any passage of Scripture without thinking of a sermon outline. Oh, this fits nice. One, two, three. You know, and an altar call. This fits good. That was just ingrained in me from early on. I, I, I actually think in outlines when I read the Scripture. Thankfully, the Scripture is outlined pretty clearly. <laughs> There's a quote that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, though it is not found, interestingly, in any of his writings. Some of the famous quotes that are attributed to famous people, sometimes they never said them. But a form of this quote does show up in the Franciscan literature. And here's the quote. You've probably heard it before. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. The point is that there's much more to preaching the gospel than the mere use of words. And while I am really big on pulpit preaching, I realized a long time ago that preaching wasn't enough. The way that we live our lives is really more important than the messages that we bring from behind the pulpit more important. So most of you know what I'm talking about. While we have some great pulpiteers in our churches in America, there is a sad lack of preachers who actually live what they preach. Now understand, none of us live it perfectly. None of us do, especially me. But pastors have to strive to allow the preaching of their lives to match the preaching that they give from the pulpit. There, there can't be a, a dichotomy of the two. So Paul's admonition to Timothy addresses the subject of the preached Word of God, but it also addresses in the same passage the way that a pastor should live. And so with that in mind, I want to break down this passage a bit more. And I'm going to follow a very simple outline, um, who, what, where, when, why, and how, okay? I'm going to pull that out of this particular passage. So we're going to start with the who. 
The first point is remember who you are serving. A pastor must not just think of his people and how to please them. He must remember who he is really serving. Someone wrote, if we displease God, it doesn't matter whom we please. And if we please God, it doesn't matter whom we displease. Isn't that good? So look at verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Those are heavy words. Hey, Timothy, in the presence of God, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing of his kingdom, which is about to burst forth in the world, I give you this charge. The word charge here means, I give you this forceful directive. Forceful directive. This is a solemn charge because God the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son, are the real audience when we preach with our words in our life. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist from the Great Awakening days in this country, said, I endeavored to preach and to act as if he had already as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the horrors of hell. Pastors, you're laboring in the presence of the Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before Him, every heart will be exposed. Every one of us will give an account before God. That is who we're preaching in front of. And even though things are not always easy, there's a sense of, of majesty in, in the ministry. All of heaven watches. All of heaven is enabling you and assisting you as well. We would do well to apply the words of Martin Luther. He said, I preach as though Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming back tomorrow. That's passion. And that's the way we should preach, and that's the way we should live our lives. It's amazing. Secondly, we remember what our primary call is. Again, that is to preach in word and deed. Paul says in verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. A.T. Robertson once said, one of the best proofs of the inspiration of the Bible is that it has withstood so much preaching. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? There's some really lousy preaching out there. I don't know if you've, you've, you've noticed. And uh, I'm just being honest with you because I won't be pastor after today, so you can, you, know, you can think what you want. But there's some really, really crazy stuff out there today. And, and he's, saying, he's saying this really proves the veracity of the Scripture. The fact that the Bible survived the preaching that goes across some pulpits today is miraculous. It's enough reason right there to believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Pastor Johnny, you are a gifted communicator. You really are. And simply put, as an ordained minister, you are called to preach the word in this verse. It's not a suggestion. This is an active imperative in the original here. It's because it's God's word and it changes lives. You know, one of the things that wows me the most about ministry, looking back over all these years, one of the things that I, I never got over, that is that 
I study through the week, and I prepare a sermon, and I study from a book that is basically, uh, le- it's leather-bound book, and I, I, I get up here, I, I make an outline, I put it on paper, and I get up on Sunday morning, and I open this book, and I explain to you, to the best of my ability, what I think it means after the time that I've spent studying. And then, when I stumble through my message, God changes lives. I've never, never gotten over the power of the Word of God to transform us. Some of my worst sermons, homiletical nightmares, people have said, that word changed my life, and I'm trying to forget that I ever preached that word. But they're saying, that word changed my life. So, take note of that. Never lose your wonder of the power of the Word of God. It is incredible. Don't ever turn from the book. Don't water it down. Don't be embarrassed by it. No matter what our culture tries to dictate to us about what the truth is and what it isn't, preach and teach as if people's eternal destiny hangs on your words because it does. It really does. The word preach means to announce, proclaim, set forth, make known. Don't ever stop doing that. Your calling is to preach the word in sermon and in lifestyle. That's the call. When Lyndon Johnson was sworn in as president, he asked his friend Billy Graham to take a position in his administration. Without a moment's thought, Billy Graham said, Sir, I believe that Jesus Christ has called me to preach his gospel. To me, that is the highest calling any man could have on earth. What Billy Graham was saying to him was, Sir, my calling's more important than yours. Dr. Leonard Hero, the president of my Bible college, used to say, if you are called to preach the gospel, don't stoop to be a king. I've never forgotten those words. So remember who you're serving. Remember that your primary call is to preach the word of God and to live the word of God. Then thirdly, remember where to apply your calling. Preach the word. It says in in verse 2, be prepared. Be prepared. In, in some translations, it says be instant. Be instant. That means always be on. Be ready to proclaim God's word and to live God's word wherever you are. Whether you're coaching soccer, playing basketball, having coffee with a church member in an organizational meeting at the mall, preaching or teaching from the pulpit, Be prepared wherever you are. Be full of the Word of God. And you you already, Pastor Johnny, you do a great job of getting ready to preach and preparing. So keep it up and, and do so everywhere you are, everywhere you go. Be filled with the Word of God. Paul said in, in his first epistle to the same young Timothy, in verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 15, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so, the where is very important. Your first responsibility is to the church that lives and meets in your home. Shepherd and lead your incredible family. The, the two of you are heroes 
to Elijah and Elisha and Eliana. And that is one of the most important places in your lives to preach and live the gospel. That is the most important place. So remember who you're serving. Remember what your primary call is. Remember where to apply your calling everywhere. And closely related to that point is the next one. Remember when to practice your calling. Remember when. In the Greek, um, it says here, it says actually in the, in the NIV, be prepared in season and out of season. What it's saying in the original is be prepared at opportune times and inopportune times. Opportune and inopportune. That means you're to preach and live the gospel when it's inconvenient and when it's convenient. It, it doesn't make any difference. Whether you feel like it or not. You proclaim and you live the word of God regardless of how you feel. Be ready with the word of God when you're scheduled to preach and teach and when you're not. Always look for ways to proclaim God's word in informal setting or when things are informal. Preach when people will listen. Preach even when they appear to fall asleep. And preach when they do fall asleep because sometimes it's really obvious. Now, this is not an admonition to work yourself to the bone either. It doesn't mean that you don't take time off for rest and for family. Sabbath is very important. But even when we rest, we still live by the Word of God. So when do we practice our calling? 24-7, 365 days a year. So remember who you're serving. Remember what your primary call is. Remember where to apply the calling. Remember when to practice it. And fifthly, remember why it is so important. Remember why it is so important. And here it is, verse 3. It's important because the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And we surely see this going on today. Paul's words describe the days that followed his writing to Timothy, and they apply to us today. People, for the most part, are, many people are not interested in sound doctrine. Instead, more and more, people will only listen to teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. You could come up with the wackiest doctrine in the world. You could just twist the scriptures and come up with something. And then get online. You'll find somebody that preaches that. You'll find a group of people that gathers around that particular thing. There is the craziest stuff going on in the world today. And so people gather teachers to themselves. There's a watered-down gospel. There's so much crazy stuff. So these people gather them around themselves. And it's pretty easy today with books and TV and downloadable sermons and podcasts and everything else. So when you have the opportunity to preach the full counsel of God, do so because people may not be hearing the truth anywhere else. Someone might come in and they're not hearing the truth and it can make a difference in their lives. And so we have that why it is so important for us to, to preach the gospel. There is so much fluffy, hocus-pocus nonsense being preached these days. And I know... Pastor Johnny and Rachel, you have a, a passion to develop followers of Jesus. So steer clear of the fluff and stick to the meat of the word and live it. It works. It really works.
So remember who, remember what, remember where, remember when, remember why, and finally, remember how to proclaim the word. Now, in this passage, there are seven, a list of seven ways that pastors have to preach and live. The first three come from verse 2, and the others show up in verse 5. Let's look at the, the first three in verse 2. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Correct. The word actually means to show to be guilty. It's almost like you're presenting evidence from the Word of God and from your life to show the person to be guilty. Not like we're trying to put a guilt trip on them. We're talking about conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so correction is our job as pastors. We can't avoid telling the truth because the truth might offend someone. I mean, we didn't write the Bible, so we're not ultimately responsible for what it says, but we are responsible to teach what it says. And so I, I, I just encourage you, allow the Scripture to correct. And, and I know you know that we do it in a good spirit. There have been a couple of occasions over the years here that I, as I prepared on sun, uh, going over my notes on Sunday morning, that I realized that there was a point that I was making in the message that was designed to attack someone with a situation I was upset about. And on several occasions, I have scribbled those out of my notes on a Sunday morning before the service because I never want to correct out of anger. I never want to use the Scripture to attack people in any way. But yet, we still have the responsibility to correct, to show, to be guilty. And the Holy Spirit does that through conviction and we're there then to, to extend mercy to them. The second word he uses here is to rebuke. That means to levy attacks upon people. Levy attacks on them. You're, you're, you're looking for a response. You're putting a responsibility on people when you preach the word of God to them. And so it, there, comes, there comes times in ministry that you have to rebuke. Now this, is one, this was one of my greatest weaknesses in ministry. I confess that to you. I, I had the hardest time with rebuke, especially personally. And I remember many years ago, the Holy Spirit started dealing with me about this and, and, and the fact that I was not willing to rebuke. And so I had a situation going on at that time where I was counseling a particular person, and you don't know them, and uh, they, they, were, they were receiving my counsel and, and I was just spinning my wheels with them. Nothing was changing. And I realized that the attitudes that I was seeing in them really needed to be rebuked. This was very unchristlike activity. So I had a, an appointment scheduled with this person, and they came in, and I just made up my mind, and I was nervous, but I thought, I'm going to rebuke her because it is needed. And the Scripture says there's a time for that. And I examined my heart. She just needs to be rebuked. And so... At the appropriate time in the conversation, I took a deep breath, and I let it fly. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, in mid-sentence, she stopped me, said, excuse me, pastor, am I perceiving correctly? Have I just been mildly rebuked? <laughs> mildly rebuked? This is my best, you know. <laughs> this is the best I have, man. I thought I was, I was raging, you know. But um, I learned, I learned back then the lesson that that rebuke works when it's done in the right spirit. 
and the right timing with sensitivity. And it's very interesting that after correct and rebuke comes the word encourage. To call near, the word means. To call them near. To invite them. And this is especially important after correcting and rebuking. Just the same way we, we, when we discipline our children, then we embrace them and love them and, and explain things to them. So encouragement is, a, is natural for you, Pastor Johnny and Rachel. You guys are encouragers. So these are the first three things. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. And he says, do these three with every kind of patience. <laughs> I, I chuckled when I studied that this week. With every kind of, how many kinds of patience are there? You know, I, I, there must be some that I don't have because I still get impatient at times. But do these things with every kind of patience and instruction. You're teaching them why it's wrong. You don't just say you're wrong. You teach them why it's wrong. So sometimes it takes patience uh, to deal like this and instruction, of course. Now, the last four hows are shown in verse 5. But you keep your head in all situations... Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duties of your ministry. Keep your head in all situations. Stay calm and settled when things are unsettled around you. This, this was a tough lesson for me to learn. Stay calm and settled when things are unsettled around you. Now, I was really good at making it look like I was calm. I remember a night, I didn't plan on sharing this, but Wendy and I were first dealing with a person who was demonized. And she was sitting in our living room, and it was about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we had been counseling her through some difficult times, and she called in the middle of the night, and we said, come over. And um, she, um, a demon started talking out of her. I mean, it was like, whoa. You know, and this demon starts telling us what it's going to do to us, and destroy us, and you wait till you see if you serve your Jesus when I'm done with you and all this stuff. There's just demons talking at us. And when he was, she was looking at the girl and looking back to me, and her head, I was afraid she was going to get whiplash. She was going like this back and forth. And she said, and I was sitting there on, on the, in a chair with my leg crossed and sipping a cup of tea, just calmly like this. And she said afterwards, how did you stay so calm? Well, the truth is, I wasn't calm. Inside, I was going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm sipping the tea. Oh, Jesus, what do I do? You know, what are we going to do? And uh, so just because you look calm doesn't mean you are. It's what I'm saying. I could really put that on pretty well. But we're to keep our head in all situations, not to let things rattle us to the point where we can't think straight. <laughs> so it's a very critical thing. Then it says, endure hardship. So afflictions come, not just to pastors, afflictions come to everybody. But he says, endure hardship. And so they do come. There are specific, unique ways that affliction comes to pastors. Um, just endure those times. They're, they're, there are difficult, challenging times, but just endure them. And then he says, finally, discharge. No, I'm sorry. Do the work of an evangelist is, is the next one here. And that, that, the word evangelist is basically a bearer of good tidings. And so the word work implies that it's not always easy, but do the work of sharing the gospel with people, the love of Jesus with people. Do that work. And then finally, discharge all the duties of your ministry. What he's saying here is don't leave anything undone. Literally, he's saying keep on filling it to the full. Carry out the will of God for your life fully. 
at every stage of your life, do everything God calls you to do. And we have found over the years that uh, the greatest thing we have, I love how Bill Johnson puts it, is the thing that the Lord loves the most is our yes. He just wants our yes. And people have asked us, how did you endure this time and that time and so on? We just said yes to Jesus is all we did. We said yes for 38 years. Sometimes we were kicking and screaming when we said yes, but we always said yes. And when we do that, we can faithfully discharge all the duties of the ministry. I close with this. In, in 1948, there was a young evangelist from Asheville, North Carolina. He was rising to prominence and he was holding tent meetings in Los Angeles. They were the meetings that catapulted this 26-year-old preacher into international notoriety. His name was Billy Graham, 26 years old. The media got a hold of this in Southern California, and the rest is history. You know how Billy Graham touched so many lives. Billy seems to have been both humbled and troubled at the success of the meetings. And in the middle of the meetings... He was quite aware of the reputation for traveling ministers in those days. Some who would preach to great crowds, but live lives that were contrary to the things that they preached. And so in the middle of these successful meetings, Billy Graham called his team together for a time of prayer and reflection at a hotel in Modesto, California. And Billy Graham said, let's talk a little bit about the pitfalls that evangelists had been plagued with. And after meeting, they, they broke into their individual rooms for an hour for personal prayer. And an hour later, they came back. And along with his assistant, evangelist Grady Wilson, his soloist, George Beverly Shea, his song leader, Cliff Barrows, Billy Graham formed what came to be known as the Modesto Manifesto. What it was, was a simple list of 15 principles that they would adhere to in order to establish and protect integrity in their ministry. In other words, it wasn't enough to Billy to preach the gospel. It had to be lived. It had to be lived out. And so the principles that they established then carried Billy Graham's preaching for another 73 years until his death, the age of 99 in 2018. What a preacher he was. But he was more than a preacher. He lived what he preached. And that's the admonition, really, of Paul when he says, preach the gospel. And he tells us all the who, what, when, where, and all that. The admonition is to make sure that we live what we preach. That's the that's one of the greatest challenges that we face in ministry. So keep the main thing the main thing. Your relationship with God and with one another, and the Lord will allow you to faithfully discharge all the duties of your ministry. Amen? Amen.